Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Each week on Post Woke, I use the phrase, hello, free thinkers. And perhaps you've wondered, what do I mean by that phrase? Now, of course, there cannot be a single definition for something that, by definition, is evolving and open-ended. But I can share some personal insights as to what goes through my free mind when I use that phrase. For me, a free thinker is someone who eschews the lure of the crowd, the hive mind, and the newsfeed. A free thinker is not enslaved by algorithms or groupthink or social labels. They question their own assumptions and take very little for granted. They are invigorated by discovering that a long-time belief of theirs has been misguided. Free thinkers crave such epiphanies. Without free thinkers, we are doomed to an endless litany of genocide, slavery, witch hunts, and so much more. Right now, free thinkers all across the globe are manifesting an awakening instead of an apocalypse. Free thinkers do not fear cancel culture because they value the search for truth far more than the tyranny of enforced trends. In that sense, a free thinker cannot even be canceled. Which brings me to episode 11 of Post Woke the Let's Get Cancelled episode. I am going solo to talk about a mix of topics, all of which could raise the ire of the cancel culture crowd. My goal is not purely provocation, however, it's exploration. And we'll start that journey right after this word from our sponsor. Hello, post-woke listeners. Mickey Z here, inviting you to get involved. You can find me at Mickey Z dot substack dot com. You can get the exact spelling of that. It's in the show notes. But you can join my substack at any time. You could subscribe for as little as five dollars a month. And as a paid subscriber, you will get all the new podcasts earlier than anyone else. You will get all the articles I write, which is at least once a week. You'll have permission to comment on any and all posts that you choose. And also you'll be really supporting this growing project. I guarantee you that in 2022, Post-Woke is going to grow. It's going to explode. And if you want to be a part of it, go to mickeyz.substack.com to subscribe now. Now, if $5 a month is not something you can afford now, you can subscribe for free. In that case, you will get emails every time there is a podcast or article available for you to read or listen to. And I would please urge you to do that if you can't afford to be a paid subscriber. And either way, whether you choose to pay or not, I'm requesting that you share this content, that you let people know that this is a podcast you listen to, that you like, and that you want the other people to listen to. You want to share this message of intellectual self-defense. So I thank you in advance for all your support, and I look forward to interacting with you all throughout 2022. To kick things off on the Let's Get Cancelled episode, we're going to begin with the pathetic propaganda label of anti-science. 
every single time a guest on the Joe Rogan experience easily and accurately dismantles the COVID narrative, the powers that shouldn't be go heavily into cancel and censor mode, supported, of course, by the woke crowd. But take a good look around. It's much more than that. More than that is happening. The pandemic facade is crumbling. More and more people and more and more institutions are catching on and speaking out. So let's do a quick run-through refresher course on what there is to be known about getting labeled anti-science. And we'll begin with the PCR test upon which the entire so-called pandemic is built. On July 13th, 2020, so let's clarify, we are now in January 2022, but in July of 2020, both the CDC and the FDA announced and admitted that the detection of viral RNA during a PCR test may not indicate the presence of infectious virus or that SARS-CoV-2 is the causative agent for clinical symptoms. It also said that the performance of the PCR test has not been established for monitoring treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection, and that the PCR test cannot rule out diseases caused by other bacterial or viral pathogens. But if you had been paying attention, you knew this already because Carrie Mullis, the man who invented the PCR test for which he was given the 1993 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Carrie Mullis warned us before he passed away in 2019. He stated that his test is, quote, incapable of diagnosing disease, close quote. He said it cannot distinguish between inactive and reproductive viruses. He also added this about the prophet, Anthony Fauci, the man who has spearheaded the use of PCR tests for COVID-19. About Fauci, Mullis said, this man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope, and if, he's, if, the, if it's got a virus in there, you will know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy, and he doesn't understand medicine. He should not be in the position like, it's, like he is in. Now, reminder, the entire pandemic narrative is built on the flawed results of the PCR test. There would be no pandemic narrative if we didn't believe that all these people had tested positive and that all these people had died from COVID-19. Saying this makes me, in 2022, anti-science and thus target for cancellation, as do the next facts. The six-foot distance is a made-up number based on the calculations of a lone German scientist in the 1890s. Lockdowns have done nothing to stop the spread of any disease, but they have destroyed vast swaths of the third world. For example, an extra 10,000 poor children are dying per month thanks to these unnecessary mitigation tactics. Masks, there is not a single randomized control trial that exists showing that masks prevent the transmission of a virus. The entire trope of overcrowded ICUs has nothing to do with COVID-19, but has everything to do with a lack of ICU facilities all across this country, particularly in low-income areas, for decades. It has just been exploited to hype up the danger of COVID-19. And the reason ivermectin has been so demonized is because in order for the powers that shouldn't be to get emergency use 
authorization of the so-called vaccines, they had to prove that there were no viable alternatives. Ivermectin was more than viable as an alternative, so it had to be eliminated in the eyes of the public. That would explain the campaign to demonize it and to demonize anyone who would promote it, i.e. Um, Joe Rogan. And speaking of vaccines, I urge you to go back to Postwoke episode number five, where I focus solely on the vaccine, and there will be no reason for me to go more into it here. And while you're at it, check out um, episode number nine, which is the Don't Trust the Science episode. Now, even jokingly, me saying don't trust the science is something that in our current culture uh, threatens me with cancellation and, and I lose all credibility. But we we live in a culture that has a very odd uh, relationship with science. For example, the same wokesters who genuflect at the altar of Fauci and Gates have been trying to convince us for years that biological sex does not matter. Some of them are trying to convince us that biological sex, sex doesn't even exist. For example, very recently, the American Medical Association, the AMA, announced that, quote, sex should be removed as a legal designation on the public part of birth certificates, close quote. So I find it utterly fascinating, and that's a kind word to use, how the trust the science crowd have become unpaid cheerleaders and laboratory rats for Big Pharma while openly denying the existence of biological sex. Case in point, there was a man who swam as a man for Penn University's swim team for three years before coming out as transgender. And after one year of testosterone suppressant use, the NCAA allowed this person to swim against women. And of course, this swimmer demolished all the records and gave the women no chance to win because men in general swim 8 to 12% faster than women. They have greater lung capacity. They have greater heart and circulatory system capacity, stronger skeletons, etc. Because it's not gender identities that swim, it's male and female bodies. But yet we live in a twisted twilight zone of cultish behavior where it's actually become necessary to remind people that males and females are two different sexes. Perhaps these ideologues could learn a thing or two from the Taliban. Because breaking news, the Taliban are not asking for preferred pronouns when imposing Sharia law. They are not concerned with anyone's identity when they pronounce that women must wear a burqa and can only leave their homes with signed per permission from a man. They are not wondering what sex a young girl feels like when they deprive them of education and or force them into sexual slavery. So note to gender theorists, your hive mind is of no concern to most people on planet patriarchy. Your policing of language on Twitter does nothing to help females in Afghanistan or anywhere. More and more people are waking up to this. We are on to you and you're genuinely, you're genuinely anti-science propaganda will not stand. Now I'll be right back with one more cancel friendly topic, the Holocaust.
We have some cool news here at Post Woke. If you go to the show notes, you will find a link for merchandise, more specifically, a Post Woke Hello Free Thinkers t-shirt for only $19.99. I am requesting that you check it out, that you buy the shirt, that you buy it for others as a gift. You wear it around and you start conversations about this podcast and you spread the word about intellectual self-defense. So again, the link is in the show notes and I really appreciate your support. It's a cool shirt, a cool design, and um, it will be really awesome is if you do order it, please be sure to send me a selfie to the email address that's in the show notes. So I appreciate your support and let's get back to the show. Please allow me to introduce a very recent bit of news. The Illinois Holocaust Museum has just announced the following. To ensure that the museum is as safe as possible for visitors, volunteers, and staff, we will require all guests age five and older to show proof of full COVID-19 vaccination to enter the building as of January 5th, 2022. The Illinois Holocaust Museum is one of many venues that have turned their back on civil liberties over the last two years. But this is the Holocaust Museum turning their back on civil liberties. It gives a whole new spin to the concept of irony. But I have a spoiler alert. Nazi Germany had a health pass too. There, I said it. I made a Holocaust comparison. Where's my free cancellation? Because if you try mentioning the Nazi health pass within the context of a COVID-19 vaccine passport, prepare yourself for an onslaught. Intellectually competent humans suddenly lose all capacity for nuance. In their closed mind, such a mention is the equivalent of disrespecting the victims of the Nazi Holocaust. More tightly, it is anti-Semitism and cause for cancellation. The term anti-Semitism is sort of the older cousin of terms like racist, transphobe, and anti-vaxxers. Once invoked, labels like this stain the targeted person or persons forever. And whether we'll admit it or not, everyone knows this to be true. That's why vaccine-resistant re people are being libeled in the corporate media for their stance. Part of, their, of that libel is a desire to prevent anyone from evoking any Nazi reference unless it directly relates to someone of Jewish descent. Now, Holocaust survivor in France was recently quoted saying this when French vaccine protesters wore yellow stars to highlight, the, highlight their suddenly less than status. The survivor said, you can't imagine how much that upset me. This comparison is hateful. We must all rise up against this. Now, some folks have made an inaccurate apples-to-apples -apples comparison of those two situations, but the vast majority of vaccine resistors are not doing that. Rather, they, or I should say we, are highlighting how frighteningly easy it is for governments to incrementally increase repression and leave the people asking for more. What I mean by saying leave the people asking for more is that what I've been witnessing is that at least half of the population seems to be quite happy and satisfied as the repression ramps up. And this is the result 
of the culture that we live in now. It's as, almost as if there is a copyright on terms like genocide and Holocaust. So for an examination of this trend, let's revisit the actions of Elie Wiesel. While Wiesel's documentation of the Nazi Holocaust earned him international acclaim and a Nobel Peace Prize, he was not always predisposed to yield the genocide victim spotlight. In 1982, for example, a conference on genocide was to be held in Israel with Elie Wiesel scheduled to be honorary chairman. The situation became complicated when the Armenians wanted it. The Israelis did not want the Armenian genocide included in the conference. As a result, the ever-loyal Elie Wiesel withdrew. He even begged Israeli Holocaust historian Yehuda Bauer to boycott the conference. Why not welcome the Armenians, you wonder? Well, you could chalk it up to two rather conspicuous factors. The first is the need for Israel to monopolize the Holocaust brand. And the second is the geopolitical reality that Turkey, the nation responsible for the Armenian genocide, was a rare and much needed Muslim ally for Israel at the time. Now, bringing all of this back to today's COVID hypocrisy, it's fascinating to watch nations that have vaccine po passports posture when it comes to other people making Nazi references. Where were these nations when actual Nazis were doing Nazi things? We're led to believe that no one knew about the death camps, and if they did, of course, they would have intervened instantly. Well, my first book is an alternative history of the good war, quote unquote. You could check the show notes for a link to it. And from the, the research I did in this book, I can tell you that this belief that people would have intervened if they knew what was going on is far from the truth. Still, the most frequently evoked after the fact rationale for the deadliest war in human history being labeled a moral battle was the Allies' supposed aim to stop the Nazi Holocaust. Hitler's final solution took the lives of roughly six million Jews, along with millions more Slavs, Eastern Europeans, Roma, homosexuals, labor, labor leaders, communists, and basically anyone suspected of such quote-unquote crimes. If decency and morality played any role, the U.S. would have taken action against Germany sometime in at least the 1930s. On the contrary, the U.S. business class had nothing but love for the Nazi regime. Before, during, and after the good war, the American business class traded with the enemy. Among the U.S. corporations that invested in the Nazis were Ford, General Electric, Standard Oil, Texaco, ITT, IBM, and General Motors. Top man William Knudsen at General Motors called Nazi Germany, quote, the miracle of the 20th century, close quote. Standard Oil of New York, that's Rockefeller's company, invested $1 million in Nazi Germany for the making of gasoline from soft coal, and this started in December 1933. And despite the well-publicized and horrendous events of the next decade, Standard Oil honored its contracts right up until 1942, and one of its contracts was with IG Farben, a German chemical cartel that manufactured Zyklon B, the poison gas used in the Nazi gas chambers. I could go on and on 
with details. I mean, I wrote a damn book about it, but I'm going to just sum it up in a couple of facts here. The U.S. investment in Germany accelerated by more than 48% between 1929 and 1940, while U.S. investment elsewhere in Europe declined sharply. Pilots were given, U.S. pilots were given instructions to not hit factories in Germany that were owned by U.S. firms. So, for example, the Ford plant in Cologne, Germany, which provided military equipment for the Nazi army, remained untouched, so much so that German civilians began using the plant as an air raid shelter. So, apologists may pretend that the details of the Holocaust were not known, but they were. And in fact, a resolution was introduced ask in, in January 1934, 1934, asking the Senate and the president to express, express, quote, surprise and pain, close quote, at the German treatment of the Jews, but the resolution never got out of committee. Even when eyewitness accounts from Auschwitz reached the U.S. Department of War and some folks in the Roosevelt administration were finally pushing for the bombing of the death camp, or at least the railways leading to it, the word came down that air power could not be diverted from vital industrial target system. It was claimed by American military planners that Auschwitz was beyond the maximum range of medium bombardment, dive bombers, and fighter bombers located in the United Kingdom, France, or Italy. In reality, Allied bombers passed within five miles of Auschwitz. In March of 1943, the editor of The Nation summed up the situation succinctly. In this country, you and I, the president and the Congress and the State Department are accessories to the crime and shared Hitler's guilt. If we behaved like humane and generous people instead of complacent, cowardly ones, the two million lying dead today in the earth of Poland would be alive and safe. We had it in our power to rescue these doomed people, and yet we did not lift a hand to do so. In April of that same year, 1943, there was an editorial in the London New Statesman and Nation that contemplated the legacy of Allied indifference to the victims of the Nazi Holocaust, predicting that when historians relate this story of extermination, they will find it from first to last all but incredible. That editorial writer would probably be, probably be stunned to learn today that the only thing that's incredible is how we now worship the greatest generation, gloss over their myriad sins, and use censorship to keep the concept of Holocaust reserved for one group and one group only. As a result, here we are living in COVID clown world, but the entire pandemic charade collapses under its own weight every time someone educates her or himself, every time someone laughs off the censorship attempts by the woke crowd and instead chooses to speak their mind and share what they've learned. Speak this into existence. You cannot be canceled for exercising your right to think and speak. Folks will try to convince you that you must do anything to avoid being offensive, but that's not how justice works and it's not how progress happens. You can, for example, respect trans rights and mourn for Holocaust victims while still standing up to oppressors of all stripes in the world today. And yes, I know such actions can feel absolutely daunting, but I'll leave you with one more Holocaust reference to mull over. The resistance fighters 
who participated in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising had a much higher rate of survival than those who did not rebel. It is time to rebel. I'll be right back with my story of the week. Both my parents taught me about goodwill And I have done well by their names Just the kindness I lavished on strangers Is more than I can explain For my story of the week, I'm going to focus on my parents. Um, this is partly because this episode will be released close to or on January 12th, which was will be the 14th anniversary of my mom passing away. And so I always like to take the opportunity to honor her and my dad for um, the countless innumerable lessons that they taught me. So this, this uh, story highlights a few of them. Now, as a reminder to everyone, I grew up in a very industrial, relatively unsafe section of an area called either Long Island City or Astoria. My mom, my dad, my older sister and I lived on the fourth floor of a five floor walk up with other family members also in the building and on the same block. This included my mother's father one flight down from us. And my Irish grandpa never really recovered from a broken hip and he relied heavily on my mom to handle the bulk of his chores, errands, etc. When my immediate family decided to move to a quote unquote better area of the neighborhood, partly to get me away from the crowd I was running with, my mom committed to returning to the old building almost every single weekday to help her father with shopping, cooking, cleaning, medical appointments, and more. And remember, she never learned how to drive, never had a license. So to the best of my knowledge, I didn't take this display of selflessness for granted. Later, when I had moved out, my mom noticed my diligent housekeeping and caretaking habits and remarked, I never realized you were, pay you were watching and paying such close attention. I like to think that later in her life, she came to fully comprehend how much I appreciated her and tried to model parts of myself after her. But anyway, back to my teenage life. It was a non-negotiable part of my everyday teenage life that after doing morning chores and errands related to us, mom would take the bus back to our old building around noon and get home no later than 4 p.m. to start making dinner for us. This routine went on for years and years, and I haven't even mentioned her feeding every stray animal within a five-block radius of our apartment and our old apartment. But one day I was hanging out with friends on my block as my dad got home from work. And reminder, um, my dad was a federal agent. I'll, I'll go more into that in, in a future episode. He, he went into our house, our apartment building, but came out within minutes, both looking both angry and frazzled. He promptly informed me that mom had had her chain snatched while getting on the bus to come home. Chain snatching was quite a common crime around that time. So, well, let me catch up on my dad now. He was a special agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And that day, he told me to get in the car and off we went. It was a government car, we called it. We weren't, we were technically not allowed in it. He was supplied a car to do his undercover work. So on this rare occasion, I got an up-close glimpse into my dad's rarely seen work persona as we embarked on a trip that would normally be about a 15-minute drive. Now, it was legend in the Zizima family that my father drove slowly and seemingly had little sense of direction. 
That afternoon, however, I was treated to another side of his automobile handling skills. We raced through red lights, in and out of traffic, and even made one quick foray onto the sidewalk. We reached the crime scene in under three minutes. I was too impressed to be, to be afraid. As we screeched up to the scene, I could see the relief on my mother's face when she saw my dad. She had a scratch on her neck and was pretty shaken up, but seemed able to exhale once my father got out of the car, hugged her, and then began, began asking questions of the cops on the scene. So throughout their lives, my parents taught me to listen for and to hear what's not, what's not being spoken, to seek the lessons found in the actions of others. They taught me more than I can name, but from the stories I just highlighted above, I gleaned this. When you commit to helping, you live it out every day without fail and without any need for praise. And in an emergency situation, you step out of your comfort zone and do whatever needs to be done. And oh yeah, one more lesson. Remember to keep your guard up. <laughs>